This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood here on Plato's Cave. This is our final uh, official final show as a group for 2016. We, we made it, folks. Go wow. team. Go team. Wow. You're back next week, Thomas? Yeah, just to clarify what's going to go on is I'll come back next week and just do a music show. I'm going to play a whole bunch of songs and film scores from the films of 2016. And then I believe uh, Graphic Nature will be filling in for us over summer as they've done the last two years. A, a really terrific summer film show um, about comics and graphic novels. Uh, they, they always do a sensational job. So, And I quite like the fact that another visually based art form show takes over from us. We're, we're going to be back in February, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We've got a final show to do for you tonight. This will be a show about our favourite films released in Melbourne in 2016. So a lot of film people are doing now their, their best of the year type things and lists. The, the, the main criteria we've gone with for ours is they have to have been films re- released to the general public uh, in Melbourne in 2016. So we, we're not doing things that we've seen in private screenings or or media previews that are going to be released early next year or, or even stuff that's only had small festival play. We're going to focus on the films that our listeners have heard of so it's relevant to you and not just us showing off what we've seen. Um, the way it worked is we chose 10 films each that we nominated as our 10 personal favourites. We ended up getting 24 films out of that. There were six double-ups and five triple-ups. Cerise, Alex and I also did this back in October. We selected 10 films for the trip, the, the final edition of the trip for this year, which is the magazine that Triple R subscribers get sent to them. And all the films that we're mentioning tonight were also included on that list, with the exception of Sherpa. Uh, Jennifer Peedham's documentary Sherpa didn't quite make it to the show tonight, but it was in our list when we did it back in October. I just wanted to mention it, though, because it's, it's, a, it's a great film and it, it, it's deserving are of you a trolling, small shout-out. Are you trolling us for being fickle? Because I'll take that. That's fair enough. No, no I'm just like. mentioning that, you know, <laughs> we'd only seen up to October back then, and, and with all the new films that have come out since, that one just got nudged out. And we also had Emma's inclusion this, for, this, for this evening as well. The spanner in the world. <laughs> no, no, the, the glorious addition to what's going to be a very uh, interesting show. I think people are going to... I, I, I've enjoyed finding out what you all liked, and I think uh, people listening are going to enjoy us when we get into discussing them. I should also mention, though, of course, there's a number of very highly anticipated December releases, which we haven't all seen either. Like, none of us have seen the new Star Wars film. Um, La La Land is a big big title that none of us have been able to see yet. I have seen Jim Jamusha's Patterson and the new Disney film Moana, but I haven't really had time to digest them and decide whether they're favourites that they're, they're amazing films, which I can re- recommend right now. But, um, but, but, yeah, we're just looking at the films released thus far. All right, let's get into it. We're going to start off, Cerise, with one of your choices, a film that was released really early this year titled The Big Short. Why is this one of your top tens? Well, because I didn't see this film coming, and I didn't think... Uh, I thought this was the most unpromising material, a film uh, about the global financial crisis, even if it had an all-star cast, which it did, Christian Bale, Brad Pitt, uh, Ryan Gosling, uh, Steve Carell. Uh, but this... Uh, <laughs> The global financial crisis to me sounds like extremely boring um, material to, to get fashion a feature film out of, and yet this it was a hoot. I still don't really understand how it all worked, even if Margot Robbie <laughs> and others did their utmost 
uh, to explain it to me in layperson's terms. But uh, it was just uh, quite a wild ride, this. It was totally engrossing and um, quite unlike anything that's come into the cinemas this year um, from anywhere, really. It, it had a conventional narrative, but it kept breaking that fourth wall and making these addresses to we, the gormless viewer, trying to get our head around something that is, frankly, quite catastrophic. It was a terrific film. I was really pleased to see you include that on the list. Now, Emma, you, you came onto the show only a few months ago, so a few of the films that you're going to talk about tonight are ones that you didn't get to cover, and one of them is The Revenant. Yes, exactly. And uh, I know that can be a bit divisive, um, uh, but it was... I had, I thought about it, and I, I thought, OK, in doing this, this list, oh, uh, you know, it's easy to get a little bit too academic and go, all right, is that the, is that the smart film that I should put in there or whatever... So I, I decided to just go with gut and not um, uh, second-guess myself. And The Revenant was a film, I don't know whether it was because it was set in the cold and it was out during Melbourne summer, but I did see it three times at the cinema um, and I felt that it was in incredible cinematic movie very exciting it's my kind of blockbuster film for the the best of 2016 um i wasn't sure what to expect i'm not a big fan of i'm going to say his name alejandro inyaritu i'm not a huge fan i didn't mind birdman but not i didn't love it um and i just found this to be really visceral and really exciting right from that first open battle scene where it's kind of like you know waist high camera roaming around and all that crazy gory shit going on that opening sequence was incredible now another film released very early this year that uh we're going to mention tonight is one of mine and that's room uh, a film i saw twice in the cinema i I have different criteria for why i i I put films into my top 10 and, and the fact that i've been compelled to see a film more than once is often a criteria and a film that kind of breaks me into pieces and reduces me into an emotional sobbing wreck is another reason or a film where i just admire the craftsmanship so much is the third reason and this film ticked off all three boxes for me just this this beautiful film by irish director lenny abrahamson it was adapted from a novel by emma donahue she did the adaptation herself and this was the film that brie larson larson won an academy award for and very very deserving um a film that could have been harrowing and unbearable if done if not handled with more expertise and sensitivity a film about a woman growing up in a small room with a five-year-old boy she's been locked in there i still don't want to give away too much about this film because as it unravels is part of the joy of experiencing it but she's there with her five-year-old son who's never known anything but this this room um we know the stakes are high but it never becomes too harrowing and then the, the the director allows us to experience the world from the perspective of this of this child who is sort of so close to going into complete trauma because of how his life has begun i was just so white knuckled during parts of this film as well it's emotional peak is in the in, in the middle and the command of of tension was almost overwhelming even after i'd seen the book Rhett's Even after I'd seen the film once, read the book, still watching this film a second time, it just had this profound effect on me. So I adored Room. 
Now, I should say that um, this has been a really good year for South Korean cinema, but we've only... Uh, only one of the many great South Korean films has made it into our top ten. So many great films we weren't able to include, but one of the South Korean films we did include was one Alex selected titled The Wailing, which I don't think you had seen when we actually uh, yeah, covered it on the show. I hadn't seen it. I saw it after uh, you guys spoke about it, and I, I'm a huge, huge fan of South Korean cinema. I think that South Korea, Spain... Argentina and Turkey, for my money, are the best film-making countries right now. I think that those films are really just packing an extraordinary punch. It was hard for me to choose uh, a South Korean film because we've had Age of Shadows as well. Uh, Handmaiden also got cinema release and yeah. Train to Busan had some festival play here. That got a small um, release. That got, yeah, I could have used Train to Busan. All of these yeah. four films are worth mentioning. Yep. Uh, they are all... Just really mind-blowing, powerful, beautiful, wonderful, energetic films. The Wailing, I think, was the top of my list. Na, Na Hongjin is is a really, really remarkable filmmaker. I was a huge fan of his film, The Chaser. Was at the Yellow Sea as well. Yes, that was um, a That up, is yep. a really, really solid. I mean, this is a guy who really knows how to make a bloody movie. Um, the Wailing, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so, I mean, there's yeah. just these these four films: Trent Busan, Handmaiden, Age of Shadows, and The Wailing. When you look at what's going on in South Korea at the moment. It's it's an intense time in that mm. country, and these films just capture this frenzy and this power and this energy. And for me, The Wailing, these are all great films, but The Wailing is the one that brings that to just a, a kind of manic crescendo. Um, I find it fascinating that so many of these films, um, both Handmaiden and Age of Shadows and The Wailing are all really explicitly framed around Japanese colonialism and... Uh, in South Korea, and they all work from it in really, really different ways. Uh, the Wailing is just, I mean, it's a very good genre film. It's a really powerful horror film, but it's just like an exclamation point at the end of 2016 for a country, and I think maybe for the world. I think that if, there were, if I had to pick a film that summed up this year and how it made me film, feel, the, the Wailing might be it. Now, we had a number of animated films which made it into our uh, top ten uh, this year, but um, the, the one we're going to mention next is actually a, a documentary about animation. This was one that you were quite taken by, Cerise. Uh, life animated uh, just destroyed me, but also uplifted me. It just alternated. I was in a state of, pu- uh, of, of intense oscillation throughout the entire film. Uh, I, I was incredibly touched by... Um, uh, much more than a Disney film is wont to do, this film about a, a young autistic uh, man uh, who finds a, a means of uh, communicating with others through a framework uh, delineated by uh, how he has um, interpreted Disney animations. I, I found this just so um, moving. And, um, look, I... I it's, <laughs> It's a bit difficult to articulate some. This is one of those films that sort of gets a bit beyond language for me, actually, because some of it, I think, is just very personally resonant. But uh, I think there's something very universal in this film, too, in which we, we all frame our uh, frame the universe in some means for us to, to make sense of, of sense of things. And I, I think while this is a very extreme case of somebody who is so shut in, uh, finding this particular means of uh, accessing the outside world. I think we, we all do that to some extent. There's something very universal, whilst something very specific about this film. I think it straddles that line between the personal and the universal very adroitly and very touchingly, and it just made me weep like a baby and ha- laugh, howl with laughter like a, um, a quite cheerful person. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Someone delighted. Well, speaking about delighted, the animation that you really captured your imagination, Emma, was the Red Turtle. Yes, yeah. This was, I think, uh, as Cerise said about the big short, this came out from nowhere for me. I didn't really expect... Um, to be so moved by it um, in the way that Cerise said she was moved by life animated. Um, this is really a dialogue-free story of survival and the animation, for someone who's really, I will admit, I have a, a short attention span. So uh, it, I found it incredibly engaging by doing so little but so much um, and the animation is just absolutely gorgeous um, the whole idea around this red turtle um, was just lyrical, gorgeous it was terrifying it was loving, it had everything it just had everything so it really came out from nowhere for me and, and I usually like cinema that's more of a cautionary tale and um, brutal so uh, yeah it says something but I, I really liked it. You're listening to Plato's Cave on 3 R. We're discussing our favourite films of 2016 and look this was a pretty good year for Australian cinema I felt and there are a number of good films. Not all of them made it into our very final top ten but the next three did and one of them was one of my selections and talking about a film that came out of nowhere and took me by complete surprise is the dance film Spear. I'm not a dance guy in the slightest. I don't really understand it. But this is a, a, a film that's adapted from a 2000 dance theatre work by the Bangara Dance Theatre. Its, its director was the artistic director of the Bangara Dance Theatre, Stephen Page. This is just a stunning film that incorporated dance, a little bit of spoken word, um, in, incredible music and cinematography it's really edited well and it, it's it, it the, the the sort of the narrative of the film i never quite under, understood all the time but that didn't really worry me because i gather that's not exactly the point these bodies in motion on on the screen just convey the experiences of this young indigenous man who's exploring his his identity his cultural identity in in modern australia and my, my main kind of memory of this film was being aware that within the first 10 minutes I had sort of more shivers down the spine moment than I hoped to get from, you know, an entire film or even, say, a week of film viewing. I, I, th I thought Spear was, well, was, was incredible and it opened my eyes to, to the power of dance. Another Australian film that, kept it, that captured, I think, all our imagination, but to the extent that Alex has included it in her list... Is Girl Asleep. What a magical little film. It's such a special little darling. I forget that this film's not my little sister. I love it that much. I just want to <laughs> give it a hug. I just want to rub its little head and pull its little piggy tails. It's so beautiful. This is a kind of coming-of-age fairy tale set in the Australian suburbs in the 1970s. Um, it's uh, directed by playwright Rosemary Myers, who adapted it from her stage play. Uh, that was written by the wonderful Matthew Wishart, who also is in the film um, as Greta, the main character's father. Um, this is a really... A, a fantasy. It's a beautiful, beautiful Australian, fantastic... It's just a party of a film. It's around a birthday party. It has, aside from anything else, probably the best use of, use of the angels on a soundtrack for a scrag fight. <laughs> if you're ever going to put a scrag fight in a film, please use the angels. Show some bloody respect. <laughs> it also has one of the best disco songs it's, of all time. It does. It does. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and I just, you know, and in the, it's just so Australian. You know, it's all the lazy Susan and the Pizza Hut jokes and all of this works. It's just, it's quite extreme and quite flamboyant and the whole film works because it's pulled together and anchored just by the beautiful performance of, of young Bethany Whitmore who just knocked my socks off. She's such a sensible, grounded character in this in this really 
yeah, I mean, people have compared this to the mighty Boosh, but I think that its 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 origins are, are much more older uh, and perhaps theatrical than even the mighty Boosh. Um, but she's a normal kid who finds herself in a really strange world, and Bethany just puts in a beautiful performance. She just pulls us in. And I, I got to meet her briefly too. Me too. She's lovely. She's gorgeous. And she's a smart kid. Yeah, we'll be is. seeing a, a, a she's a very smart actor person. I very say. good at her she's, job. She's Wonderful very film. good. We'll be seeing a hell of a lot more of her, uh, which is a very good thing. The other Australian film that's made it, the, the final Australian film that made it onto our list is another one of my selections, and this is Ivan Sen's Goldstone. This was his follow-up to the 2013 Outback thriller Mystery Road. And in many ways, it, it is sort of more of the same, but but that makes me extremely happy because I adored Mystery Road and I adored this. It, we we, we return to the, the the misadventures of the troubled Indigenous detective Jay Swan, played by another one of Australia's great actors, Aaron Peterson. Uh, in, in this film, he's in a small mining community looking for a missing Chinese girl. Uh, you know, both Mystery Road and Goldstone just blended the style, tone, and archetypes of classical Hollywood film noir and westerns with this very distinctive Australian. Australian iconography and, and Australian themes, doing some very complex exploration of, of gender and race. I love Sen's cinematography. That's one of the many things he does himself. Some really amazing aerial shots in this film. I remember your commentary, Emma, on on the way the aerial shots represented or reflect uh, look like Aboriginal dot painting. Yeah, yeah. It was such a profound observation. I mean, this is one of those films where I kind of fell in love with it even more while talking about it and getting excited hearing what the rest of you had to say about it. Just the use of light in the dusk and dawn scenes. I, I adore Sen's, Sen's films and, um, and Goldstone is just yet, yet another favourite of mine. We've done a number of Australian and American films mostly, but the next sort of little clumper sort of films from all around the, the, the rest of the world, starting with, uh, with a Spanish film, Cerise, Julieta. Julieta. Oh, Julieta. 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 Julieta, yes, a new mode of our film, and thankfully not uh, in the same vein as, as previous I'm So Excited, which was dismal. This is a return to the world of a glorious, uh, even Hitchcockian uh, melodrama and uh, women to the centre. And they're not necessarily on the verge of a nervous breakdown, but most people are in his films, and all the more interesting characters typically are. This was just lovely. Much of it told... In flashback, a mystery within a mystery, um, a film that doesn't necessarily promise a, a resolution, and I shan't say whether it delivers one, but is just a, a journey. Uh, and I th- if I cast my mind back to the episode where we review this, I think we were especially taken by the, his use of yellow, was that I'm right? I'm very yeah. big on the use of yellow yeah. in that film, in Almodovar in general, but particularly yeah. Julieta. I mean, it, it's just a, a gorgeous thing to behold throughout. Uh, it, He's always had a, a knack for um, decor and for colour and uh, just gorgeousness. And also great to see Rosie De Palma back uh, on the big screen. Much um, seemingly aged, but she's also kind of timeless. Her features are so distinctive. I was only thrown for a moment when we first see her and we uh, she's in this fishing village. Um, and she's, uh, she's unannounced. I didn't know she was going to be in the film. I get, It's just one of those character actors that you get a kick out of any time you see them. She's... Uh, She's too um, out of our cinema what... Um, oh, there's a challenge for someone else to finish that sentence. I wish I hadn't even gone there now. <laughs> she's, she's quite a singular creation and maybe I should leave it at that. It's a good film. It's not, I don't think, quite vintage 
Almodovar, but very good Almodovar is still a cut above most other people's films. From Spain over to South America, we don't get heaps of films from South America, but a Colombian film really uh, captured all our imagination, so much that it made Alex's list. Alex, Embrace of the Serpent. This sounds so corny and so hyperbolic and so overblown, but I can't, even now, so many months later, I can't believe how privileged I feel to have seen Embrace of the Serpent. I know that sounds really almost overwrought, but it just it's just one of my I think it's going to be one of my films of the decade like it just had that that huge an impact on me it's um possibly one of the most beautiful films I've seen this year by a long shot it's just really incredibly strong high contrast black and white photography it's a Colombian Venezuelan Argentine co-production directed by Chiro Guerra um, and it, it's set, it has two different time periods. So it's set around the 1900s and then in, 19, in the 1940s. And it follows, uh, follows a character called Karamakate, um, whose tribe have been, um, destroyed. He's the last remaining person of his tribe during, uh, colonialism. And it's very much told from his perspective. So young Karamakate is played by, uh, Nilbio Torres and old Karamakate is played by Antonio Bolivar. And each of these, uh, this, different ages of this character meet a westerner at two different points and these are westerners who come looking for a particular plant and that's how the film is structured is these two stories two westerners coming to columbia and trying through him to find this 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 magical plant this mystical plant it's a very simple setup but where it goes it it feels to me almost like a reply to films like um uh, fitzcarraldo you know these very western films about south Af- uh, south america that were told through the eyes of westerners this film really turns that around there's a lot of anger in this film there's a lot of beauty in this film and there's a lot of humor in this film in places that you least expect it i was just really struck by its depth and its range of feeling just a beautiful film Uh, another film that we all really loved but it made it onto emma's list is under the shadow the iran set horror film yes yes i think um in alex's words uh i do love uh going to uh seeing cinema that takes me somewhere where i've never been which um i have never been to tehran i've never been there in the 1980s post um post-war cultural revolution whatever was going on there that crazy stuff um i've never seen a genre film uh that's been you know set in this kind of setting and was really quite a simple presentation as well this film it didn't feel cluttered yet it was dealing with so much uh in terms of the the actual horror itself was a a cultural legend the jinn the idea of this um this spirit that comes through on the wind and that they actually used uh, uh the method of war to bring it into the domestic environment and then the plight of women um uh, in terms of uh, the oppression that they were experiencing at that time and also as the plight of a mother and mother's guilt, which has played out a lot in horror movie um, in recent years. So there was so much in this, but um, it just came together so lyrically and um, Jane Fonda workout videos, mm-hmm. I didn't expect to see them there. So that was all very exciting. It was a, a great film. Um, Babak... Anvari, um, uh, made by a man as well. So, um, fantastic. 
great insight, great movie. From a film about women directed by a man to a <laughs> film about men directed by a woman, this was another one we all loved, but Cerise, you especially. I'm talking about the Greek film Chevalier. Yeah, this is a very funny film. <laughs> um, supposedly part of the so-called Greek weird wave. I don't think the film's actually as weird as all that. It's just a, a gentle exaggeration of what is already very well-known and documented behaviour amongst men folk, which is just competitiveness and here there's this completely absurd quest which escalates into ever greater levels of absurdity just for a bunch of um, men middle-aged on a boat trying to determine which of them is the best in general and um, you know it's it's so acutely observed everything about it is plausible and yet somehow just not quite right it's just a bit skew with but really not that much and this behavior is is i think so recognizable and i would be astonished if, if this didn't tickle pretty well anybody's funny bone in this film because who couldn't relate to the behavior of these appalling yet endearing human beings they're just so damned human and it's a very funny film Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Hunt for the World of People is the next film on our list. This was one favourited by both Alex and Cerise. Alex, tell us about I your did, love for this film. I never used this this phrase. I did a lol. I did a... <laughs> <laughs> I did what the kids call a lol in this film. I was screaming with laughter. I... I I knew it would be fun. I didn't expect it to be the delight that it was. I mean, I'm I'm into just anywhere that I can just pervert Sam Neill for a while, even if he's old and crusty and cranky, or especially if he's old and crusty and cranky. Jesus. But the be- <laughs> Here she goes. <laughs> the beautiful Julian Dennison is at the heart of this movie. What a special kid. And the wonderful Rima Tewita. Did I say that right? Uh, Weata. She's She's, oh, she's a mum. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious film, but so much pathos and so much uh, Kiwiana and a lesson there for all people, uh, especially around this part of the world, who sometimes balk a little at making their films, let's say, as Aussie as they could be for fear that they won't find a market abroad. It's not the case. Keep it uh, local, keep it real, and you'll find an audience anywhere so long as the content is good. This film was gold and it's done, uh, gone gangbusters everywhere. It's a fabulous film. Uh, well said. Emma, Nocturnal Animals is one of the ones that you and I selected. Uh, we did. Yeah, the second film by Tom Ford, adapted from the novel Tony and Susan by Austin Wright. This, you know, the, the story within the story structure and the ambiguous ending of this film, I, I loved how this just demanded that as an audience we have to question how this fictional neo-Western revenge story uh, being read in... in within the film reflects on sort of the story of the person reading it. This uh, Amy Adams in one of her two really knockout performances this year as this kind of... Yeah, sort of bitter, sad art gallery owner reading, yeah, this very violent and aggressive novel her her ex-husband has has sent her. I'm still kind of wrestling with what this film is all about. Uh, You know, the themes of revenge, catharsis, suffering and and finding meaning in art if there is any meaning that art can possibly deliver. I, I have a terrifying feeling this is a nihilistic film, but I can't get it out of my head. It's had such a lasting impression on me. Yeah, I've, I've had the same effect with, or it has had the same effect on me. Um, so that's why I included it on the list. I thought if, you, if you're thinking about a film a month afterwards or, you know, maybe I'll be thinking about it this time next year, then it's definitely a film that's... Um, 
powerful and has succeeded. And I think that um, Tom Ford is just amazing as a filmmaker and to be able to see someone who transcends those from fashion designer to filmmaker and still manages to do both so well is quite incredible. It was a film that was very much, um, I think bigger than the sum of its parts it came it came together um it had amy adams is fantastic there were so many fantastic elements that came together and just created something huge which i loved well actually emma speaking of films that have stayed with you i think that the the, the next one we've got (laughs) certainly did that with everybody for for good or for worse it's probably the most diverse film uh, sorry divisive divisive film of, of the year yeah the Neon Demon. This is one that you and Cerise selected. Oh, because Cerise we were and right. I. Yeah. yeah. Of course, because we know, we know good cinema. No, this was, um, I think that, that idea of, um, the, the setting was unique. This idea of this cutthroat modeling world and a young, wide eyed or doe eyed young lady coming into this world and, um, being torn apart in some way, uh, was quite spectacular. <laughs> it's probably the wrong thing to say, but it was a beautiful looking movie. Um, it fits within that idea of, um, with Nicholas Wynn Winding Refn, who's the filmmaker and writer, um, his uh, trilogy. We talked about that being that un- you know informal trilogy of films that he's made, which is Drive, um, uh, Only God Forgives, and uh, this film. And I think that this is an example. I think if you've liked either or both of those other films, you really need to see it. And I think that this is sort of these three films are his pinnacle for me yeah terrell having his cake and eating it sort of film trying to critique something whilst absolutely wallowing in what he's critiquing <laughs> and making a film that is glossy to the point of utter absurdity that is such the perfect description of reffin yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and funny and funny, it, it funny. very funny funny. very very Just funny wrong and uh, <laughs> quite quite a joy to wallow in that wrongness if you'd be so inclined and i really was inclined i'd like to revisit this film sooner rather than later well, Cerise, speaking of films where I think you can just really wallow in its visual style, uh, we come to one that you and I have selected, uh, another animation film, Kubo and the Two Strings. Oh, this was gorgeous. You yes. and I were really blown away by yeah. this. Yeah. It was a beautiful synthesis of uh, live action and CGI. Um, so often those wor- uh, and, yeah, those worlds merge in a way that's not exactly seamless. Uh, but this this film... Uh, it's so seamless that you even forget that there might be multiple things going on and just get caught up in the story, which for a couple of little concerns we may have voiced about culturally appropriative goings-on within the within the narrative. Um, nonetheless, I think was uh, it's an utterly compelling film and, and just, yeah, it still rankles with me a little, just the voice characterizations. I, I, but then I wouldn't have wanted something... Um, uh, cliched and offensively uh, oriental either mm. uh, this is something that it's it seems a little uncomfortable hollywood taking on the making of a film like this but nonetheless it's a glorious film and it's some of it is very funny yeah i mean that, that issue we discuss i think is a footnote to the film that, that is part of a broader conversation about mm. uh, you know having um 
you know, say white actors standing in for, for Japanese animated characters. Uh, you know, this is an important point we need to make. But that aside, this is a stunning film. I did, I just loved its dreamlike, dark, exciting quality. I found it very yeah. moving. I mean, it's such a good hero's journey, but touching on issues of, of family and, and community and ultimately forgiveness and reconciliation. And it even dares to make sense. Yeah, as in, you know, it, it's, it's makes complex sense. too. It is it, complex. It all comes together. It, yeah, it does. It resolves in a way that is wholly satisfying. Yeah, no, it's my favourite animation in, in in quite quite a long time. Well, since Inside Out, so it was only a year. There we go. My favourite yeah. animation in, in a year. But Kubo and the Two Strings, a, a lovely film. Um, we'll change pace quite dramatically now. We'll go to one that Alex and Emma picked. This is another film that I guess we can say has an overwhelming visual style, uh, and that's the, the Witch. Emma, I don't think you were with us when we discussed this film originally. No, so let's hear from you first. No, I wasn't. And it's been quite a while since I saw it. I actually saw it at the Melbourne Film Festival. So it played the year previous, 2015. 2015 yeah. Um, and, yeah, uh, look, it's a debut feature film for the writer-director Robert Eggers. And, wow, what a debut. I mean, it really came out from um, somewhere and, uh, and was very exciting. It's the story of um, a family in the... Uh, 1630s New England in America and they're kind of uh, challenged by forces of witchcraft black magic and possession um, and their their religious, their faith kind of plays into that as well um, I found that this once you uh, you adjusted to the ye olde language which really puts you into, um, into the film as well uh, this had some of the more um, interesting horror um, uh, imagery that I've seen in cinema for quite a while, very original, and was a really truly tense piece of paranoia. I first thing I heard about this film was when it played at I think it premiered at Sundance last year or Sun yes. Sundance Sundance. <laughs> we can talk about that later. Um, one of my favourite film critics is a guy called Russ Fisher, and he was blown away by it. A lot of people were blown away by it. He described it as having the same impact on him that discovering metal when he was a teenager did. And I thought, <laughs> I've got to see this film because I don't know if it can live up to that description. And it does. Um, I mean, it's this pure, you know, this very puritanical family. Um, the, the, the title gives it, you know, tells it all. You know, the finger is pointed at this young woman. You know, is she the witch or isn't she the witch? This tension builds and builds and builds. And it's just this extraordinarily contemporary um, metaphor, I think, or this sort of parable of girlhood, these kind of pressures on girlhood. Where do you go? Where do you go if you're the bad one? What do you do if you're the bad one? I just adore this film. It's so intelligent and so visceral and so smart. Great use of a goat. Black Philip, Black Philip. <laughs> we we've just talked about a number of really stylish films, which often do very well with us. I think we're all very visually minded and we love cinema that is bold visually. But uh, we're going to talk now about a film that Cerise and I picked that we only covered on the show a couple of weeks ago, which is quite the opposite, and this is I, Daniel Blake. Uh-huh. This is by no means a visually bold film. It's very much a classic Ken Loach film. It's This is ultra realism and, and like most Ken Loach films um, it's angry and very moving and explores issues of inequality poverty and and social justice and I still can't get out of my head this you know this, this very Kafkaesque scenario of this, this man so he's being made to look for work to maintain his benefits despite being told he he's unfit for work and how a few people have said that's exaggerated or implausible and I just 
you know, I think I said this two weeks ago, if you've never fallen on hard times yourself and had to deal with the system, then I can see how maybe you might think that. But for everybody who's had to deal with government support of any kind, this film uh, hits a very painful for nerve. I, I, I'm increasingly thinking this is not only one of Ken Loach's best films, it might be his, his best film of, of all time. That, that scene in the food bank is the most powerful scene I've seen in a film this year. Yeah, it's a very purposeful heartbreaker, this film, and... Uh and for an 80-year-old director, he's still got his, his fingers right on the pulse. Um, still angry. He's <laughs> really pissed off. And I think this film is going to, uh, in, in the era of Trump and Brexit, it's going to just resonate more and more. Um, there's more and more people who generally feel disenfranchised butt heads against a system that really is doing the, its utmost to shut them out and doing it indifferently. And I think that's what this film really... Ram's home is just the sheer indifference of of the system to uh, people who hit upon hard times and will struggle to ever extricate themselves from that from their dire predicaments. Three triple. I'm emotional about Carol for so many different reasons. I saw this with Josh Nelson, um, our dearly departed. Not that he's, you know, nothing's happened to him. He's just in the US. Hi, Josh. We love uh, him. Departed from the country. Departed yeah. from the show. Departed from the country. Oh, that was intense. Um, and our friend and colleague, James Tierney, we, we saw this together and um, we all three, I think, were really had a lot of anticipation for this movie, um, primarily, I think, for the Highsmith, um, the Highsmith and the Todd Haynes connection. Mm. Um, just And it lived up to every single hope that we had for this remarkable, beautiful love story. Um, it's a very old film and a very new film. It is, and it's very much a film. I think it was all shot on 16mm. It, it's definitely, like a lot of Haynes' films, he's a you know, master pasticheur and he's trying to conjure up a look of a bygone era, not just because it's a period film, but because he's uh, in love with certain melodramas, the films of Douglas Sirk and Latter-day Sirks like Fassbinder. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's terribly moving and yet weirdly glacial at the same time. It, it, it's this weird tension between a certain coldness but also a real uh, emotional um, heft that the film has, it's mostly because the, the characters are dealing with the repressive uh, world around them that doesn't really encourage their love to flourish, and um, yeah, many of us can resonate to such things. And you've got all these key scenes that are played out through glances and gestures and, and other moments of unspoken communication. And, of course, the, the other film is heavily references is David Lean's 1945 drama Brief Encounter, which gets referenced a, an awful lot. Carol does it very overtly and very expertly. Um, a, a, a beautiful film, which I'm, I'm dying, really dying to, to revisit. Um, another film we've all, uh, three of us have listed, uh, which will take me a bit of time actually to revisit. It's pretty harrowing, but that's Son of Saul. Uh, Emma, Alex and I covered this on the show when we were by ourselves, I think, and we went nuts for this. So I'd be yes. keen to hear your thoughts because you've selected this along with Alex and I. Yes, I have. Um, harrowing, wow, intense. It's basically uh, just when you think you you couldn't come um, back with anything new about World War Two or the Holocaust, this film comes along. It's basically two days in um, Auschwitz and it follows uh, a character. And when we say follows, it's like right on this character, um, on his face or almost on his back 
the camera most of the time, who is uh, working for um, a squad that's kind of, of of Jews that are pulled to one side to actually assist the Nazis in the corralling of people into gas chambers and just basically acting as watchdogs for them. And um, this character thinks he sees his illeg- illegitimate son in the gas chambers and it's it's really about within this this tense really 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 barbed environment um finding meaning i guess in within that uh, while you're just trying to survive but um i think this film doesn't talk down to people that's the most amazing thing it says we all know what go went on here we're not going to try and shock you with that again so most of what we see is um shown out of focus behind the camera at uh, the character which makes it all the more harrowing actually yeah look i mean son of saul I think this is a film that succeeds on every single level. This is just emotionally devastating. And it really wrestles with these questions of what it takes to survive and, and when does a noble act in extreme circumstances become reckless or selfish? Um, and how do you measure life and, and morality when surrounded by, by death and evil? This, you know, this film really stayed with me. I think if there's one film tonight that I would recommend is absolutely essential, this is the one that I would say that everybody has to see. The issue of how do you represent the Holocaust? Um, it has been such a profound question for philosophy um, you know, for, for decades and decades and decades. And this film, I think, uh, Lazo Nemesh uh, put an extraordinary amount of thought and research into this and also craft. He thought about how do we use film to tell this story? How do you represent this? Geza Rerig, who plays Saul, uh, is a poet and he's, I mean, there's a poetry to this film and it, it feels strange to talk about the Holocaust and poetry, but there's, I've never seen anything like it and I don't think I ever will. Yeah, yep, agreed. It's and I should add that I haven't yet seen that. So, um, there are a few films. Yourself, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. And it's also worth yeah. mentioning that that's the case with a lot of films on this list that there's probably few here that all four of us have in fact seen. So that's a little, a little qualifier to this list, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't yeah, it? actually, the films we're talking yeah. in the final moments of the show films that got three votes so mm. we didn't get any films this year with four votes but I think all four of us still loved all these films or hadn't got to see them all yet so yeah. th- I think we can say these are all films that we recommend as Cerise a group. would have loved Son of Saul oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, Cerise you would love it I think we can call it a four vote film yeah, let's, talk, let's, talk, let's talk about a film we do know Cerise loved uh, yeah. that was Mustang oh yeah Gorgeous uh, Turkish film. Um, I have to cast my mind back a little bit. Yes, a uh, story of the uh, imprisonment within the home of um, young women, uh, all sisters, each of them a, a couple of years apart uh, at various stages in a very controlled very controlled lives. Uh, there's a patriarchal society and you know, made abundantly clear the patriarch of the family has more or less predestined the fate of these young girls and they they just want to live a, a life and there's a bit of rebellion there but there's also tragedy and there's a, a glorious Warren Ellis score which is as big a surprise as, as anything because, not because I don't expect wonders from Warren Ellis but just that there was a Turkish film and I thought these, these violin strains sound sort of familiar and lo and behold the credits rolled and yes it was Warren Ellis and I thought oh wunderbar. I think it's a French film, oddly enough. She's a Turkish-born director, yeah. um, Denis Gamze Ugervan, but I think this was the French entry for the Oscars, I think. Is that right? Or French foreign language, even, because it's Turkish? Yeah, Or yeah. some little loophole exploiting thing like that? Mm. It's a beautiful film. I mean, this is an extraordinary movie. I've got to give a shout-out to the uh, actor that plays Lale. It's, I think it's been a good year for girls in film. Um, BFG, I also thought, had a great girl story, but Lale was played by Gunnar Sensor, and she's just a wonderful, wonderful kid. 
Emma, this is one of the ones that you were taken by as oh, well. Oh, yes. Yep. Oh, sorry. I thought we were running out of time. But yes, yes, I think this is a very spirited film. I loved that the, it, those girls were just so beautiful inside and out with their long flowing hair running around until they're absolutely uh, all the spirits kicked out of them, except for Lale. Lale. Love Lale. Lale rules supreme. Now, speaking of amazing performances by women in film, how about Isabel Huppert in Elle? Can we just give her all the awards now? Let's Can we do just it. call Round it? Of applause. Yay. <laughs> and all the awards go to Isabel Huppert. Uh, Verhoeven's Elle is a film about a woman who refuses to respond to trauma in the way that you think she should. Full stop. It is Verhoeven, I think, at his best. It is certainly Huppert at her best. It recalls Jean Renoir. It recalls, I think, more strongly uh, Claude Chabrol than um, Michael Haneke. It's one for everybody to see. Give her all the awards. Yeah, look, this is dangerous and provocative material, even the more so by how enjoyable and frequently humorous this film is. This is one of the ones I went to see twice. It troubled me and I loved it simultaneously. That's what Verhoeven does best. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, the type of film you get out of and straight away I just was texting and calling people and saying you've got to see this you've got to see this so i can talk to you about it because it's a film that you can easily spoil so just see it and we've got one final film and that is another one that's still actually playing in the cinemas right now you can still i think l is still screening so you can still catch that and this final one is still screening and that's arrival by the french canadian filmmaker denis Villeneuve. look this just again ticked all the boxes for me it's that that it's that traditional science fiction that provides a really powerful political allegory in this case it's that kind of rare side of science fiction film where the, the alien story is used to more promote a, a message of social cohesion rather than fear of outsiders it's that hard science fiction tradition of really seriously interrogating what it would take to actually communicate with aliens and then there's that philosophical tradition of using the science fiction scenario to explore abstract concepts like language and communication memory and time and if that wasn't enough it's driven by this very emotional and personal story uh, uh, driven by Amy Adams as the film's protagonist, this linguistics professor. I think if Isabel Huppert wasn't getting all the awards this year, we'll then give them to Amy Adams. They can jelly wrestle for them. <laughs> wow. And Verhoeven can feel that. I'm glad you said that, yeah, not me. No. But yeah. <laughs> I'm just having a little moment, don't mind me. Oh, I'm good with that. Denis Villeneuve is my favourite contemporary director, I think I can really comfortably say. I think two of the best films of the last decade are Polytechnic and Enemy. I think he's just... There's nobody that comes close to what this guy's doing. I don't think Arrival is his best film, but I think it's a wonderful film. I think it's a really solid genre film and a really, really solid movie. The performances are great. And what I love so much about it is that in the space of genre, he is very... He, he brings a very, very cold aspect together with something very, very warm at the yeah. same time. And nobody does that like he does. He's tonally a master. Mm. Yep, yep. I love this. I love the way it worked with um, the communication element, um, the idea of having her as a linguistics professor and the working out of communication with the alien, uh, the, the aliens. Well, they are aliens. Yeah, they're aliens. Uh, they're ETs. Um, it, it just went, it went for another langle, angle and it also, uh, it brought in a second B storyline that's just a killer. It's, it just comes and it just brings it all together so beautifully.
And we are done. The full list of the films that we collectively love this year will go up on the Plato's Cave page on the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You've been listening to Thomas Caldwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. This was our final show for 2016 as a group, but we will be back early next February to discuss what 2007 has to offer cinema-wise. I will be back in next week by my... 17. 2017. <laughs> what did I say? 2007. You lost, you lost a decade. You got, you got caught in the arrival It's that time, time thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll make sure I'm back in next week, though. I'm, I'm going to be <laughs> flying solo, doing a music so- show, so playing some of the notable songs and film scores from the film... The films of 2016. Uh, that show won't be podcast, so if you miss it uh, and you do want to listen back, you can do so via the Triple R On Demand playback service. Thank you to all the staff at Triple R for their support during the year, especially station manager David Houchin, programming and content manager Beck Hornsby, and talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy. Also, a big thank you to Nerida Haycock, Marion Blythe, and Kyle Chapman, who panelled the show for me during the year on the shows when I was away. And a huge thank you to Christos Cholkis and Hayley Inch, who stepped in as special guest co-hosts throughout the year. Thank you to everybody who listened to the show, either live or as a podcast. Thank you to Josh Nelson. One thank of, you, Josh thank Nelson. You, Josh. Thank you, Josh Nelson. We love you. One of Plato's <laughs> Cave's original presenters and co-founder, who sadly left the show a few months ago to move to the U.S., And finally, a big thank you to my very talented, smart and lovely co-hosts, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Heller-Nicholas and Emma Westwood. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.